Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. This episode is the second in a two-part series of literary talks produced in partnership with Sotheby's. In this conversation, acclaimed actor and Charles Dickens enthusiast Simon Callow joins David Goldthorpe, Sotheby's head of books and manuscripts for Europe in a live event chaired by award-winning novelist Kate Moss to discuss a fascinating handwritten text of David Copperfield, which Dickens used to perform dramatic live readings and is included in the London auction on Thursday 20th of July. This event took place in Sotheby's Galleries in London to mark Sotheby's Book Week, which encompassed three books and manuscripts auctions in London, Paris and New York. And if you head to Sotheby's.com, you can discover numerous fascinating works featured in the London auction. And now I'll hand over to our chair, Kate Moss, to kick off the conversation. The thing that I love, I suppose, and particularly listening to you talk about Dickens and, and obviously the books that you've written about him, is this sense of the, an enormous appetite yeah. for life yeah. and for the messiness of humanity. All the people, not just one type yeah. of person. He's very... Even with the baddies, as it were, he's generous, isn't he? It's absolutely right. There's a huge generosity, of course, but also he can be very, very savage about things. But you, you have to remember that the absolutely pivotal moment in Dickens's life was this time he spent in the blacking warehouse. When he was 11, he went into this blacking warehouse, having had a very nice life in the countryside. His father then ran out of money. Uh, then they lived rather terribly in Camden Town for a while. Finally, he found himself put into this blacking warehouse, working 10, 12 hours a day, just putting on a little piece of paper on a jar of shoe polish and tying it with a string and then sticking the label on. But a hundred times, 500 times, maybe a thousand times a day. He felt utterly humiliated. He felt he was going to be extinguished. His father was in debtor's jail. He was in a, in a little room up in Camden Town, didn't know anybody at all thought that he could so easily become a criminal himself, but held it all together. And then finally he was released from the blacking warehouse. He went to school and then he breathed this huge sigh of relief that there was a chance that he might become a full human being again. And that drove him to the end of his life. He was only 58 when he died, having achieved a staggering amazing amount and looked so 80. Yes, but I mean, it's amazing. He was so young. I mean, now that, yeah. that feels very young. And, and before we go on to uh, Dickens as a writer-performer and to start celebrating some of the most extraordinary things that are in the sale, as well as being incredibly human and living a very human life, as it were, there were consequences for his writing, weren't yeah. there? So David Copperfield that is one of the performance texts that's in the sale. Writing that semi-autobiographical work, that nearly did for him. 
Yeah, um, because he'd kept quiet about the blacking warehouse. Nobody knew about it at all until one day somebody went up to John Forster, who's Dickens's best friend, was a famous editor and writer himself, and said, do you know, I've just been took, putting two and two together. That little boy in the blacking well, isn't he Dickens? And uh, Forster went immediately to Dickens, and Dickens said, I'm going to tell you everything, only you. And he wrote a lot of it down, and then he showed it to his wife, and he showed it to Forster, and said, nobody else must ever know about this till I'm dead. And then he decided, a few years after that, that he needed to address it head on. And so having written down this autobiographical fragment, he decided to make a novel out of it. And of course, the early years of David Copperfield are almost identical to the early, apart from Mr. Murdstone, there was nothing like that. But Micawber and all the rest of it are just transcribed from life. Mm. And it's extraordinary, really, um, given how generous and non-judgmental he is yeah. for many of the characters. The idea that that sense of shame about what had happened to him and the poverty yeah. and being there, that he, he felt it so keenly. The, the thing that's so extraordinary about David Copperfield is that it still has a power that is transforming writing today. You know, the winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2023 is a retelling of David Copperfield yes, by Barbara right. Kingsolver, mm, yeah, yeah. uh, Demon Copperhead. And it is absolutely chapter and verse. And verse, absolutely. It, it, you know, it's su such it's an extraordinary so novel. Yeah, yeah, it is extraordinary. And of course, when he, at the moment he started writing it in Bonchurch in the Isle of Wight, he, he had what essentially is quite clearly a nervous breakdown. Yeah. He started shaking all over, he was weeping all the time, and this was not Dickens. Dickens was held together like this. And uh, he, he really, I mean, it's astonishing that he managed to get through it and then carry on writing. And maybe if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have been able to carry on writing. Maybe, maybe not. It was maybe it was sitting in there. To, I mean, yeah, as all yeah, of us as yeah, writers, yeah, yeah. we have that, don't we? Um, David, I'm going, going to bring you in because we want to talk about not just Dickens as the court writer, the journalist, the novelist, but also Dickens as the performer. And of course, I can't imagine anybody who could have done a better job in bringing him to life than <laughs> you have done, Simon. He was very influential, wasn't he? I mean, T.S. Eliot, for example, he nearly had a different title for The Wasteland. He did. So I'm going to leap forward into the 20th century. And when T.S. Eliot was writing or, or com composing the, the Wasteland, if you look at the facsimile type scripts, just above, the, the first part of the poem is called, um, I think it's called A Burial. And above that, in capital letters, it says, he do the police in different voices. And that for a while was the working title of The Wasteland. It's um, taken from our mutual friend, and it's a comment made about a character called Sloppy. And Betty Higdon is introducing Sloppy, who's a, a potential adoptee to the, the newly rich uh, Boffinses, hoping to take Sloppy under, under their collective wings. So it goes, For I ain't, you must know, said Betty, much of a hand at reading writing hand, though I can read my Bible and most print, and I do love a newspaper. You mightn't think it, but Sloppy is a beautiful reader of a newspaper. He do the police in different voices. <laughs> and, you know, that, that struck me. I mean, if you think, first of all, just thinking about The Wasteland is a poem full of voices from the beginning with the aristocratic um, Marie and then transcending all the different social classes to the, the sort of cacophony of voices in the pub towards the end when uh, time is being called. And then, of course, that obviously why 
Eliot thought of Dickens because if you think of the diversity of voices in Dickens from the sort of constrained, circumscribed world of Lady Dedlock to the chaotic sort of demimonde of, of Nancy and, and the artful Dodger, Dickens did all the, he did all the voices. And in that way, his prose is remarkable for lending itself to performance. And we know that Dickens was a great reader of his, of his own work. I mean, toured all over the place, working himself to the bone, as well as all his other commitments of editing his journals and writing his novels. First and, author to take America, really, wasn't he? First yeah, absolutely. And, and, and was a huge success. Yes. I mean, a, a rock star. I mean, you can't imagine that, that he was able to fill these vast stadiums without any microphones. <laughs> and, uh, I see what you did there. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, he devised it all brilliantly. He stage managed it so wonderfully so that he was to be found in a single... First of all, there was gaslight, you know, and the, and the footlights, but he also created a little frame round his reading stand, which was lit, again, with gas. And so no other light in the room at all. It was as if he was hovering in the mid-air, focused on his face and his gestures. It's extraordinary that he had that whole other career. And he obviously had to plan these readings out um, very carefully because he had, you know, time to fill. Uh, he had to make sure that it was all done properly. And his... Beloved David Copperfield was unusual in the sense that that was a very long reading that he gave it. To his, his readings from David Copperfield lasted about two hours. Some of his other readings were more sort of vignettes or uh, sort of shorter readings of characters from his works. Like he often gave a reading of uh, Mrs. Gamp, which is a little bit shorter. But David Copperfield was the full two hours. So what we have here, which is in the sale, is... Dickens attempts to distill David Copperfield into a two-hour reading. So these are chapter divisions, each of which represents a vignette. So it's a preparatory work. He wouldn't just have this and then speak from memory, but this is his working document for him to, to understand what he was going to say, how long it would take, and in what order he, he would say it. And it's a, it's a tiny piece of blue note paper with handwriting on it. I mean, it's probably about 15 centimetres by eight. Well, actually, I have no idea how big anything is, but I would say 15 by eight. So it, it's tiny for a, a two-hour show, really, isn't it? Yes, he, he breaks it down into six chapters. Um, what's interesting is the reading concludes, not with the, the slightly more upbeat ending of, of the novel, but chapter six describes the storm at Yarmouth and the death of Steerforth. So it ended on a slightly somber, a somber note. Yes, and uh, a rather unexpected... Steerforth such an ambiguous character. Dickens clearly... Sorry, uh, David clearly, clearly loves him, despite mm. everything he's done. But the thing that is so significant here, I think, and one of the things that, again, makes Charles Dickens different from any, almost any other author until the relatively modern age, where we are all being pushed into the area of performance now, is that he knew what worked on stage, didn't he, Simon? He was, many actors said it was jolly good he wasn't being an actor professionally because they'd, they'd be out so of a job. And he knew what to keep in and what to take out. And the text, the performance text changed. Didn't well, they? very much so. He was, just to briefly say, he was, uh, he was uh, obsessed by the theatre. He went to the theatre, he said, as a young man, at least eight times a week, even auditioned, 
or wanted to audition, uh, got an audition with the Covent Garden Theatre. And uh, interestingly, when he went for his audition, he got an attack of neuralgia all the way down the side of his face and, and in his arms. And so he had to cancel it. And they said, oh, so come back next year. You're obviously going to be, you're very good. Uh, but instead, his uncle asked him to be a, a, a stenographer in the House of Commons. But he then for the rest of his life pursued amateur dramatics. But being Dickens, there was nothing amateur about it at all. It was, it was fiercely disciplined and uh, he really worked his actors furiously. He turned his house in uh, um, Bloomsbury, Tavistock Square, into a kind of theatre, basically. He knocked down a wall in order to give the sort of perspective he wanted. He was absolutely fanatical about the theatre. And do, do you think... I, I've been pondering this since we first were talking about doing it. You know, I write plays as well as novels, and I'm interested, and I wonder if you have an answer as to why he didn't write plays. Well, he did. You know, in, the, yeah, they're but, I terrible. Mean, <laughs> ah, well, there we are. So, is that it? That he his storytelling was about performance and fiction rather than being able to put together well, a piece of theatre. It's a very, very interesting question, yeah. and I think that the answer is that the novels are highly theatrical. Yes, but they're not in this dramatic in the sense of no. the construction of a play. Also, he was so stage-struck that when he wrote plays, he wrote plays exactly like the plays in the theatre of his own time, which right. was sentimental and sort of a coyly comic and everything you long for in Dickens on the stage just Didn't doesn't materialise. So he could not do it. No, so interesting. But, I mean, it, it was... Some, you know, some of the texts in the sale... There are different versions, aren't there, David? It's not that there was one David Copperfield and there was one Christmas Carol. He, when he started, he did all of Christmas Carol, didn't he? And yeah. then realised that, you know, there were, there were some longer, shall we say. So it lasted moments. three and a half hours. Yes. I think he didn't want to keep repeating that. But is that actually just an extraordinary performer understanding? Because, you know, we, you obviously do it, I do it a bit. When you're doing something on the stage and you can feel the audience drifting off, so you then change it. I mean, are you drifting off, audience? You look quite perky, actually, I'm glad to say. But he was professional to the last. He wasn't precious about it, was he? Not at all. No, no not at all. He was ruthless about it. He, he knew exactly what worked. And very surprisingly, for example, he was also always had his ear to the ground. He always knew what people were thinking, feeling, what they cared about. And with Christmas Carol... The novel, of course, uh, it, it, it absolutely centres on that extraordinary scene where the spirit of Christmas present reveals from the folds of his cloak these two absolutely starving, feral children called ignorance and want. And Scrooge says, whose children are these? Are they yours, spirit? And he says, they are mankind's. And he says, and those two things, ignorance and want, will destroy the world completely. And you, it's such an extraordinary thing. And he wrote that because of, he'd read that terrible parliamentary commission on the employment of children in mines and all of that. And it's one of the most vivid things. However, amazingly enough, when he did the, his own adaptation of Christmas Carol, later, you know, after that first uh, go at it, he actually took that out. And I asked one of the great Dickens scholars why, and they said, Michael Slater said, because things had improved a lot, because there had been reform, Joseph therefore it Butler wasn't any more topical. Yes. So he took it out. Yes. Unfortunately, 
it is topical yes. today, yes. Uh, as topical as it ever was. Yeah. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. I would love you to read, but before you Not do, yet. I'm just um, interested in... Who inspired him as a performer? I mean, you've talked about Charles Matthews and the uh, Monty Pollock yes. and all of those kind of things. Um, well, lots of, lots of people. Macready, the great William Macready, was, uh, he idolised him and it was one of the great events of his life when he became a friend of Macready's and he hung around all sorts of actors. We don't know their names so very well now, but they were great, great men of their day. Macready we know a bit better because he kept diaries that everybody now reads. But the great influence on him and this is not just on him as a performer, but him as a writer, was a, a guy called Charles Matthew, who invented a remarkable form of theatre, which was basically a one-man show in which he played many, many, many different characters. But we've, many of us have done that. But Charles Matthew used to go off as one character and come back as another, having changed completely all and all the rest of it, or all of that. He named this form, the Charles Matthew named it Monopolylogues. So um, they're many voiced, but only one person. And Dickens absolutely adored this and learned them all. He learned them. And when he went to audition, in Covent Garden, had he gone to audition, that's what he would have done. Yeah. One of the monopolylogues. And so what he did was to adapt that into his, into his novels, because that's really doing the police in many voices. Mm. It's a kind of virtuoso performance. And that's my final sort of thought about Dickens as a novelist, is that he is the novelist as performer, or the novelist as actor. He acts his novels for us. They're performances, they're astonishing performances, which is one of the reasons why they're so enjoyable. Yes, and, and, and a cast of many. And I think, actually, this is the perfect moment for a virtuoso performance. Oh, right. Because David did... Uh, ah, yes, you see, we've been practising this. Um, <laughs> Because David mentioned that the David Copperfield performance script finishes in a different place and it finishes with the death of Steerforth. And you have a beautiful old Southerns yes. edition yes. of this um, that you're going to read it's, the death it, of Steerforth. It, it was, this is an interesting thing, that these reading versions of Dickens's were published in his own lifetime. Not all of them, but uh, uh, quite a lot of them. They were published in 1861 and uh, this was a reprint in uh, 19. 
21 Southerns. Uh, oh. Very lovely. And I'm going to read the last chapter, but I would just like to read in advance uh, a review of, not my performance, but Dickens's performance of it by the actor Macready, who by now had retired, but he came to see Dickens do it in Cheltenham, and Dickens wrote down what he'd said, and he imitated, or rather brilliantly caught, same thing I was talking about, earlier. His ear was so astonishing. He caught Macready's famous conversational manner, which is, Macready, imagine Macready going backstage to see Dickens afterwards, and he says, I, I swear to heaven that as a piece of passion and playfulness, indescribably mixed up together, it does, um, no, really, Dickens, uh, amaze me as profoundly as it amuses me, but as a piece of art, and, you know, um, that I... No, 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 Dickens, by God, have seen the best art in a great time. It is incomprehensible to me <laughs> how it is got at, um, how it is done, uh, uh, how one man can... Well, it lays me out. I, 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 it lays me on my um, 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 back, and, and, and it is of no use talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> So, there's something completely different, as they say. I think I better move this a little further away. <laughs> so, this is uh, chapter five of the reading version of David Copperfield. I heard a footstep on the stairs one day. I knew it to be Mr. Peggotty's. It came nearer, nearer, rushed into the room. Master Davy, I, I found her. I lay my dear child last night in my lodging here in London. I thank my heavenly father for having guided me in his own ways to my darling. You, you have made up your mind as to the future, good friend? Yes, Master Davy. There's mighty countries far from here. Our future life lays over the sea. As he gave me both his hands, Hurrying to return to the one charge of his noble existence, I thought of Ham. Who would break the intelligence to him? Mr. Peggotty thought of everything. He had already written to the poor fellow and had the letter in the pocket of his rough coat ready for the post. I asked him for it and said I would go down to Yarmouth and talk to Ham myself before I gave it to him and prepare him for its contents. He thanked me very earnestly and we parted with the understanding that I would go down by the mail that same night. In the evening, I started. Don't, don't you think that? I asked the coachman in the first stage out of London. A very remarkable sky. I don't remember to have ever seen one like it. No, nor I. That's wind, sir. There'll be mischief at sea before long. It was a murky confusion here and there blotted with a colour like the colour of the smoke from damp fuel, of flying clouds tossed up into most remarkable heaps, suggesting greater heights in the clouds than there are depths below them, to the bottom of the deepest hollows in the earth, through which the wild moon seemed to plunge headlong, as if in a dread disturbance of the laws of nature she had lost her way. There had been a wind all day, and it was rising then with an extraordinary, great sound. In another hour, it had much increased 
The sky was more overcast, and it blew hard. But as the night advanced, the clouds closing in and densely overspreading the whole sky, then very dark, it came on to blow harder and harder. It still increased until our horses could scarcely face the wind. Many times in the dark part of the night, it was then late in September when the nights were not short, the leaders turned about or came to a dead stop, and we were often in serious apprehension that the coach would be blown over. Sweeping gusts of rain came up before this storm like showers of steel, and at those times when there was any shelter of trees or lee walls to be got, we were fain to stop in the sheer impossibility of continuing the struggle. When the day broke, the wind blew harder and harder. I had been in Yarmouth when the seamen said it blew great guns, but I had never known the like of this or anything approaching to it. We came to Ipswich, very late, having had to fight every inch of ground since we were ten miles out of London, and found a cluster of people in the marketplace who had risen from their beds in the night, fearful of falling chimneys. Some of these told us of great sheets of lead having been ripped off a high church tower and flung into a by-street. Others had to tell of country people coming in from neighboring villages who had seen great trees lying torn out of the earth and whole ricks scattered about the roads and fields. Still, there was no abatement in the storm, but it blew harder. As we struggled on, nearer and nearer to the sea, from which this mighty wind was blowing dead on shore, its force became more and more terrific. When we came within sight of the sea, the waves on the horizon caught at intervals above the rolling abyss were like glimpses of another shore with towers and buildings. When at last we got into the town, the people came out to their doors all aslant and with streaming hair making a wonder of the mail that had come through such a night. The tremendous sea itself, when I could find sufficient pause to look at it, in the agitation of the blinding wind, the flying stones and sand, and the awful noise confounded me. As the high watery walls came rolling in and tumbled into surf, they looked as if the least would engulf the town. As the receding wave swept back with a hoarse roar, it seemed to scoop out deep caves in the beach. When some white-headed billows thundered on and dashed themselves to pieces before they reached the land, every fragment of the late hole seemed possessed by the full might of its wrath rushing to be gathered to the composition of another monster. Undulating hills were changed to valleys. Undulating valleys were lifted up to hills. Masses of water shivered and shook the beach with a booming sound. Every shape rolled on as soon as made to change its shape and place and beat another shape and place away. The ideal shore on the horizon with its towers and buildings rose and fell. The clouds flew fast and thick I seemed to see a rending and upheaving of all nature. Not finding Ham among the people whom this memorable wind, for it's still remembered down there as the greatest ever known to blow upon that coast, had brought together on the beach, I made my way to his house. It was shut, and as no one answered to my knocking, I went by backways and by lanes to the yard where he worked. I learned there that he had gone some miles away, 
to meet a sudden exigency of ship repairing in which his skill was required. But that he would be back tomorrow morning in good time. I went back to the inn, and when I'd washed and dressed and tried to sleep, but in vain, it was five o'clock in the afternoon. I'd not sat five minutes by the coffee room fire when the waiter coming to stir it as an excuse for talking told me that two colliers had gone down with all hands a few miles off and that some other ships had been seen laboring hard in the roads and trying in great distress to keep offshore. Mercy on them and on all poor sailors, said he, if we had another night like this. I could not eat, I could not sit still, I could not continue steadfast to anything. Something within me faintly answering to the storm without tossed up the depths of my memory, wild running with the thundering sea. My dinner went away almost untasted, and I tried to refresh myself with a glass or two of wine. In vain, I walked to and fro, trying to read an old gazetteer, listened to the awful noises, looked at faces, scenes, and figures in the fire. At length, the steady ticking of the undisturbed clock on the wall tormented me to that degree that I resolved to go to bed. For hours I lay there, listening to the wind and water, imagining now that I heard shrieks out at sea, now that I distinctly heard the firing of signal guns, now the fall of houses in the town. At length, my restlessness attained to such a pitch that I hurried on my clothes and went downstairs. In the large kitchen, all the inn servants and some other watchers were clustered together about a table, purposely moved away from the great chimney. One man, referring to the topic they had been dismissing, asked me whether I thought the souls of the collier crews who had gone down were out in the storm. I remained there, I dare say, two hours. Once I opened the yard gate and looked into the empty street, the sand, the seaweed, and the flakes of foam were driving by, and I was obliged to call for assistance before I could shut the gate again and make it fast against the wind. There was a dark gloom in my lonely chamber when I at length returned to it. But I was tired now, and getting into bed again fell off a tower and down a precipice into the depths of sleep. I dreamt of being engaged with two dear friends, but who they were, I, I don't know, of the siege of some town in a roar of cannonading. The thunder of the cannon was so loud and incessant that I could not hear something I much desired to hear until I made a great exertion and awoke. It was broad day, eight or nine o'clock. The storm was raging in lieu of the batteries, and someone was knocking and calling at my door, what, what is the matter? A wreck! Close by! What, what, what wreck? A schooner from Spain or Portugal laden with fruit and wine. Make haste, sir, if you want to see her. It's thought down on the beach. She'll go to pieces any moment. I wrapped myself in my clothes as quickly as I could and ran into the street. Numbers of people were there before me, all running in one direction to the beach. I ran the same way, outstripping a good many, and soon came facing the wild sea. Every appearance it had before presented bore the expression of being swelled, and the height to which the breakers rose and bore one another down and rolled in in interminable hosts it was most appalling. 
in the difficulty of hearing anything but wind and waves, and in the crowd, and the unspeakable confusion, and my first breathless efforts to stand against the weather, I was so confused that I looked out to sea for the wreck and saw nothing but the foaming heads of the great waves. A half-dressed boatman, standing next to me, pointed to the left. Then, oh, great heavens, I saw it close in upon us. One mast was broken short off, six or eight feet from the deck, and lay over the side, entangled in a maze of sail and rigging. And all that ruin as the ship rolled and beat, which she did without a moment's pause and with a violence quite inconceivable, beat the side as if it would stave it in. Some efforts were being made to cut this portion of the wreck away, for as the ship, which was broadside on, turned towards us in her rolling, I plainly described her people at work with axes. Especially one active figure with long, curling hair. But a great cry, which is audible even above the wind and water, rose from the shore at this moment. The sea, sweeping over the rolling wreck, made a clean breach and carried men, spars, casks, planks, bulwarks, heaps of such toys into the boiling rage. The second mast was yet standing with the rags of a rent sail and a wild confusion of broken cordage flapping to and fro. The ship had struck once, the same boatman hoarsely said in my ear, and then lifted in and struck again. I understood him to add that she was parting amidships, and I could readily suppose so, for the rolling and beating were too tremendous for any human work to suffer long. As he spoke, there was another great cry of pity from the beach. Four men arose with the wreck out of the deep, clinging to the rigging of the remaining mast. Uppermost, the active figure with the curling hair. There was a bell on board. <coughs> Excuse me. And as the ship rolled and dashed, like a desperate creature driven mad, now showing us the whole sweep of her deck as she <coughs> turned on her beam ends towards the shore, now nothing but her keel as she sprung wildly over and turned towards the sea, this bell rang, and its sound, the knell of those unhappy men, was borne towards us on the wind. Again we lost her, and again she rose. Two men were gone. <coughs> the agony on shore increased. Men groaned and clasped their hands. Women shrieked and turned away their faces. Some ran wildly up and down, crying for help where no help could be. I found myself one of these, frantically imploring a knot of sailors whom I knew not to let those two lost creatures perish before our eyes. They were making out to me in an agitated way. I don't know how, for the little I could hear, I was scarcely composed enough to understand that the lifeboat had been bravely manned an hour ago and could do nothing. And there's no man would be so desperate as to attempt to wade off with a rope and establish a communication with the shore that was nothing left to try. And I noticed that some new sensation moved the people on the beach and saw them part. And Ham came breaking through them to the front. I ran to him. I held him back with both arms and implored the men with whom I had been speaking not to listen to him, not to let him stir from off that sand. Another cry arose on shore. And looking to the wreck, we saw the cruel sail with blow on blow beat off the lower of the two men and fly up in triumph around the active figure 
left alone upon the mast. Against such a sight, and against such determination as that of the calmly desperate man who was already accustomed to lead half the people present, I might as hopefully have entreated the wind. Master Davy, he said, cheerily grasping me by both hands, if my time is come, tis come. If tan, I'll bide it. Lord above, bless you and bless all. Mates, make me ready. I'm a-going off. I was swept away to some distance where the people around made me stay, urging, as I confusedly perceived, that he was bent on going with help or without, and that I should endanger the precautions for his safety by troubling those with whom they rested. I saw hurry on the beach and men running with ropes from a capstan that was there and penetrating into a circle of figures that hid him from me. Then I saw him standing alone in a seaman's frock and trousers, a rope in his hand or slung to his wrist, another round his body, and several of the best men holding to the latter, which he laid out himself, slack upon the shore at his feet. The wreck, even to my unpractised eye, was breaking up. I saw that she was parting in the middle and that the life of the solitary man upon the mast hung by a thread. Still, he clung to it. He had a singular red cap on, not like a sailor's cap, but of a finer color. And as the few yielding planks between him and destruction rolled and bulged, and as his anticipative death knell rung, he was seen by all of us to wave it I saw him do it now, and thought I was going distracted, when his action brought an old remembrance to my mind of a once dear friend, the once dear friend, Steerforth. Ham watched the sea, with the silence of suspended breath behind him, and <clears throat> the storm before until there was a great retiring wave, when he dashed in after it, and in a moment was buffeting with the water, rising with the hills, falling with the valleys, lost beneath the foam. Then he was drawn again to land. He was hurt. I saw blood on his face from where I stood, <clears throat> but he took no thought of that. He seemed to give them some directions for leaving him more free or so I judged from the motion of his arm, and was gone as before. And now he made for the wreck, rising with the hills, falling with the valleys, lost beneath the foam, borne in towards the shore, borne on towards the ship. The distance was nothing, but the power of the sea and wind made the strife deadly. At length he neared the wreck. He was so near that with one more of his vigorous strokes he would be clinging to it when a high, green, vast hillside of water moving on shoreward from beyond the ship, he seemed to leap up into it with a mighty bound, and the ship was gone. Some eddying fragments I saw in the sea as if a mere cask had been broken in. <coughs> Consternation <coughs> was in every face. <coughs> they drew him to my very feet. Insensible. Dead. He was carried to the nearest house, and I remained near him, busy, while every means of restoration were tried, but he had been beaten to death by the great wave, and his generous heart was stilled forever. 
as I sat beside the bed when hope was abandoned and all was done. A fisherman who had known me when Emily and I were children, and ever since, whispered my name at the door. Sir, will you, will you, will you come over yonder? The old remembrance that had been recalled to me was in his look. I asked him, leaning on the arm he held out to support me, has a body come ashore? Yes. Do I know it? He answered nothing, but he led me to the shore, and on that part of it where she and I had looked for shells, two children, on that part of it where some lighter fragments of the old boat, blown down last night, had been scattered by the wind among the ruins of the home he had wronged. I saw him lying with his head upon his arm, as I had so often seen him lie at school. Steerforth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Simon, that was absolutely magnificent. We had you, we had Dickens, and we had Steerforth. Um, I'm very mindful of the time. Uh, but David, just, just a couple of things. Firstly, we know that actually Dickens was writing for serialization. You know, the books that we have, which are big and chunky, they didn't come out like that. They came in sections. And there's always the joke, isn't there, about um, that because the print runs were so large for Dickens, they weren't worth that much money, the first editions, in the way that they might be. And the signed copies, um, you know, they're, they're quite rare. Yes, I mean, the, coming back to the um, serial publication, I mean, the practice of reading has changed over the years. Everyone here will be used to reading Dickens in a Penguin classic with footnotes and an introduction and all sorts of supporting material. And if they're lucky with the original illustrations, Reproduced, one would hope so, because they're an import, important part of the of the work. But obviously, Dickens, almost all of his work was published in parts. And around us today, we've got various copies of his works in parts. There's we've got Pickwick Papers, Nicholas Nickleby. Here we've got a tale of two cities. And the other thing that these parts came out every month. So Bleak House. If you're reading Bleak House, it would take you 20 months, nearly two years. You would be living with that book. And I know it's a big it's a big book. I reread it last year, but it didn't take me it didn't take me twenty months. So why did they publish in this way? There are various reasons. A lot of them are economic. It was people were more able to buy the parts as they came out rather than splashing out on the whole the whole work. It gave the writer a steady income and it gave the publisher a greater opportunity to advertise. And advertising is actually quite a large part of why these books were published serially. So I have here a part uh, this is part one of A Tale of Two Cities. So it's what we call octavo size. It's just slightly larger than normal paperback with a lovely blue color cover um, with <coughs> illustrations of vignettes from the work. But when you open it up, first thing you see, or the first thing you see here is Tale of Two Cities Advertiser. And so there's a whole little supplement with all sorts of things in it. The first one, this is an advert for Heels, who are still going in um, Tottenham Court Road. 
There are other wonderful things in here. Edmonston's pocket siphonia or waterproof overcoat. And they also sell portable India rubber boats. At the back, there's an advertisement for light brown cod liver oil. But then here, and this is very interesting, there's a little yellow insert and it says, discontinuance of household words. The last number of household words will be published on Saturday, May the 28th, from and after which date that publication will be merged into all the year round. Both of these periodicals were, were edited by Dickens. So at the same time that he was writing all these part works, he was also editing these um, wonderful... It, it, it is one of the extraordinary things about him that, you know, he, he wrote to be read, but it also was a business. And he was aware about marketing and how you could get the work out there and how that would be much more important. But I do love the idea that signed copies are very rare because the joke nowadays for all of us who are novelists is that if you can find an unsigned Kate Moss hardback, you would be very lucky indeed. Uh, because if you sign them, they can't send them back. So, you know, it's totally changed around. One of the things that I do want to ask, I mean, it sounds maybe rather childlike question. And in front of this audience and the global audience that will be listening as well. But why do you think that, David, that people collect? What is it about holding uh, a first edition or an edition that Dickens himself held in his hands that makes it so special for a collector? Well, I think that, that contrary to sort of some sort of modern literary theoretical views, texts don't just exist out there. They exist in books and books are things and they're published and printed and it's it's wonderful to hold the thing that was the first appearance of a of a, of a text that that you love and it's, it's interesting to see how it was typeset how it was presented and as i say the, the practice of reading is is so different now than to what it was then that it sort of takes us back almost to when it was new almost although the books are old it's like it's like seeing things afresh and there are all sorts of different things about first editions some of the James Bond books, for instance, have the most amazing trompe l'oeil dust jackets, which you just don't see anymore. And they're so redolent of the, of the period, yeah. just in the way that the advertisements in here are redolent of the, of the period. It, it's, um, it's context as well, isn't it? Yes. It's um, uh, the, the great Neil McGregor, who I'm sure you will all know, who was the former director of the British Museum, wrote a beautiful series uh, called Shakespeare's Restless World. He has a phrase, he calls it the charisma of things. And when I'm researching my historical fiction, holding a book that could have been held by someone in the 17th century, there is immediately that sense that you are connected. The words connect, but the physicality of a book is extraordinary. And as we said earlier on, the consequence of Dickens being such an, a polymath, being such an extraordinary person, is that now contemporary novelists like me and many others, we now do what Dickens did. It's a very modern phenomena, but it comes right back from Dickens, that we do go out and now perform our books. And you would have thought in the 21st century, it would all be digital, but it isn't. Because in the end, as we heard with Simon's magnificent reading, the idea of an author speaking her words or his words is something that readers want to hear. So we are all somehow now walking in Dickens' footsteps, which is an extraordinary thing. 
and why I think the sale will be wonderful. I know the sale started on the 4th and it will carry on and we'll, we'll come to that at the end and welcome back uh, Charles, <laughs> Simon, uh, Steerforth. I mean, this is, this is taking method acting to an extreme, mm-hmm. isn't it? Expiring on stage. Um, we have run out of time, um, but I think everybody can agree that this has been the most extraordinary hour celebrating Dickens, uh, supporting Sotheby's Book Week with Intelligence Squared and these extraordinary uh, items that are going to be part of the sale. But could you please give an enormous round of applause for Simon Callow and for David Goldthorpe and to everyone at Sotheby's. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intelligence Squared. This event was organised as part of Sotheby's Book Week, held to mark a series of sales taking place in London, Paris and New York from the 4th to the 20th of July, featuring literature, illustrations and musical manuscripts that span continents and centuries. The London auction will take place on Thursday the 20th of July. Please visit sotheby's.com to find out more.